0: We are back in Second Timothy. We're in our Nothing to Lose series again. Um, it's going to be great. We've got a pretty interesting passage this morning. Before we get to that, curious question for you. Does anyone here enjoy keeping up with the news? How about this? Do you watch an evening news program on television? I know a few of you do. I can tell. I don't really do that much anymore. I get all my news on my phone through the various feeds that I like to look at. But there is, you know, something about that good old-fashioned way of watching a a news hour on the television. Think about this. When you watch news on the TV, if you do, do you notice how a lot of the the news anchors kind of begin? They'll say something like, good evening. And then they'll go on to share a bunch of things that don't make it a good evening. Isn't that interesting? Uh, I was perusing some of the headlines this week in the news. This This is a smattering of what I came up with, okay, the last few days. Haiti hurricane death toll doubles to 800. Archbishop Tutu wants the right to die. The turbulence of Brexit. Eastern Aleppo and Syria faces total ruin. And finally, militants attack refugee camp in Niger. This is not a good evening, is it? That is not a good evening. Those are... Things happening that make us think about the state of society or culture, it's a bit of a reality check. Similarly, the Apostle Paul is about to give Timothy a reality check about some of the difficult times and circumstances and people in his own experiences and in the days to come. Uh, if I could have a couple of volunteers pass up some Bibles. If you need a Bible... Just raise your hand, and we'll get a we'll get a red Bible to you. We typically use the New Living Translation here; pretty easy to understand. We'll get that Bible to you. Uh, While that's happening, let me give a little bit of of recap and a little bit more context again for this series. If you're just kind of coming into this with us now, Uh, basically here it is. Okay, Paul is um, this is shortly before Paul's death. The date of 2 Timothy is right before he dies. So this is like his last will and testament. And there's a certain urgency that you can sense throughout his writing here, um, as he knows it's important that the work goes on. In fact, Paul is imprisoned at this point. He's already gone through a preliminary trial. And the outlook, quite on, honestly, it's not looking good. Paul knows the end is near. It's not looking good. So Timothy's a friend of Paul's. He's joined Paul on his second missionary journey before, He's, and he had been with Paul towards the end of Paul's first Roman imprisonment. Then when Paul was released from that imprisonment, he took Timothy with him to Asia Minor. So they're going to head to Ephesus before moving on to Macedonia. The problem is, when they get to Ephesus, there's a bunch of false teachers, okay? Okay. They're trying to take over the church, just like Paul predicted in Acts chapter 20. So Paul keeps going to Macedonia, but he says, Timothy, stay here. You're in charge of the church. You're going to be in Ephesus. So that's where Timothy stays. Paul was eventually going to return to Ephesus, but before he could do that, he was was rearrested. And he's back in chains. He's in a cold dungeon. He's awaiting the end. What is the end? Well, the Bible doesn't specifically tell us what the end is for Paul, but extra-biblical historical sources speculate, and there's a good variety of them that record, that after Rome went up in flames, you know who was scapegoated for that? The Christian community. And out of that, so the sources say, the Emperor Nero had Paul beheaded. So that was his end, not too long after this document that we're looking at today, Second Timothy. So that's where this urgency comes from. Paul's awaiting execution in a prison cell in Rome. Paul has this laser-sharp focus determined on encouraging and equipping Timothy to continue the work of ministry. So we're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, the first nine verses today. If you have a red Bible, it's page 1002. Let's read that beginning in verse 1. You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times, for people will love only themselves and their money, They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. They are the kind who work their way into people's homes and win the confidence of vulnerable women who are burdened with the guilt of sin and controlled by various desires. Such women are forever following new teachings, but they are never able to understand the truth. These teachers oppose the truth just as Janice and Jambres opposed Moses. They have depraved minds and a counterfeit faith. But they won't get away with this for long. Someday everyone will recognize what fools they are, just as with Janice and Jambres. So that's the passage for this morning. If we're honest, this is a really, this is a heavy passage, okay? Paul's not sugarcoating anything, and it's okay for us to feel the weight of this passage, of what he's saying. It feels pretty bleak. At the beginning, this is the base of the passage, at the beginning we have a list of like 19 characteristics of evil people, then we have a short description of how these evil people prey upon vulnerable women. Are you feeling encouraged by this passage yet today? It's not a very encouraging passage. But don't worry, we're going to find a thread of hope here. Um, let's take a look at this this morning. What is Paul really saying? If we look at this a little bit more closely, Paul has some interesting content to share with us. Verse 1. You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days, there will be very difficult times. In the last days. Are we living in the last days? Do you speculate about that? Speculate? Sometimes I think we might look around at what's happening. We observe kind of the, the way things are going. We think about how it used to be. We might think back into history. And we might have an opinion about that are we living in the last days a lot of people thought about that for a long time i think what people are really asking when they ask if we're living in the last days is this they're saying are we living in the very last chapter the last generation of people prior to jesus coming again are we living in the last of the last days got a uh picture to show you here of a film that i went to when i was when i was a child in the 1980s i went to a church they were showing this film anybody recognize this long time i think it was from the 70s somehow a decade later churches were still choosing to to show this a thief in the night and there will be no place to hide apocalyptic end times um, brings a sense of concern and fear now, this, this movie used a particular framework and understanding of the last days. There's a variety of those. We're not going to talk about that today. But what it did for me was it got me thinking about the last days. And it got me thinking about the urgency and the message of the gospel. And so it was interesting the effect that just seeing a film like that um, had. Now, it's not just Christian media. Think about Hollywood Television, social media, literature, they all seem to be obsessed with the last days and apocalyptic, apocalyptic themes. It's really interesting when you think about that. And it's not just today. People have been thinking about these things for a long time. Got another uh, picture. This is Martin Luther, or a caricature of Martin Luther. Did you know that in the spring, it's the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation? I think that's kind of neat. i got friends in Germany that are pretty excited about that. I think it might be a unique opportunity for some renewal there as people think about what happened. Our own church family, we're part of another Reformation, the Radical Reformation, where we emphasize um, personal, um, uh, personal renewal and faith in Jesus Christ, bel- getting baptized as a believer, as your own decision. Um, Martin Luther, he emphasized personal reading of the Bible and the Gospel of Grace. And here's the thing. When he was going through all the upheaval of that period of time, the conflict and the fragmentation of the Catholic Church, Martin Luther was convinced this was signaling the end. He believed that the soon coming return of Jesus was going to happen, likely in his lifetime. Okay? He was wrong. Likewise, Jonathan Edwards, lived in the 18th century, super bright guy. He went to Yale when he was like 13 or 14. Um, preached during the Great Awakening. Prior to that, he's observing the moral decay across society, and Jonathan Edwards figured this is hopeless. Jesus is going to return at any moment in my lifetime, and guess what? Jonathan Edwards was wrong, too. So people of every generation have often had this sense like this is it, and that's okay. They're discerning the times. They're 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 sensitive to that. That's great. But what does the Bible? What is the Bible clear about in terms of last days? This is um, what the Bible says about last days. The last days is basically the time between the first and second coming of Christ. So Christ's life, death, resurrection, and then ascension, that's inaugurated the last days. I've got a couple of verses to show you. First one is uh, 1 John 2.18. Dear children, this is the last hour. The last hour. It's right now. Hebrews 1.2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So when Jesus is there, speak, that's the last days. Then. And 1 Peter 1.20. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. But now in these last days, he has been revealed for your sake. So the reality is, we're living in the last days. And so are they. That's the time between Christ's first and second coming, the last days. We can expect these times to be difficult and even more difficult in increasing severity as we get closer to the end of the last days. Uh, in verse 1, it mentions the that there will be very difficult times. When you read difficult times in the original language um, in Greek, the, the word here is, Calipoi, and what that, what that more literally meant was something fierce. It's only used one other time in the New Testament, in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew 8.28. And this is what it said there. When they came to the other side, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs. So fierce that no one could pass that way. So that's the word used there for fear. So these aren't just going to be mildly difficult times. These are going to be fierce times, fierce seasons of difficulty. And we can see this throughout history as we look at history. But here's the thing. As followers of Jesus living in the last days, just like the apostles were living in the last days, as followers of Jesus, our posture in the midst of difficult times is not a posture of fear and depression. Let 's look at what Jesus has to share with us let 's look at what the Gospel of Matthew says chapter twenty four twelve to fourteen. sin will be rampant everywhere, and the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. and the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it, and then the end will come, and then the end will come. so while there's going to be difficult times Jesus followers are to endure and Jesus followers are to have a focus. What's the focus on? The focus is on bringing the good news to the whole world. So every nation and people group will know that about Jesus and his great love for them. So when you look around and you see that sin is rampant everywhere in our society, in our culture, what do you, what do you do with that? When you see just Sin permeating everything. What do you do? Do you retreat? Do you kind of step back and protect and create some kind of a protective bubble? Do you do that? Or do you, bring, or do you move forward bringing the good news to whatever context you find yourself in? Whether you're here, cross cultural, in the workplace, at church, in homeschool, in public school. Do you bring the good news? Where's your focus? Where's your focus? Few years ago, uh, serving at a church, we were, we wanted to share the good news in kind of a creative way. Just try something a little bit outside of the box. It happened to be the week before St. Patrick's Day. So we thought, what can we do, what can we do to kind of take advantage of this St. Patrick's Day feeling, momentum, what, you know, whatever it is. During St. Patrick's Day, your kids might like to get food, green food coloring, make cookies and make them green, or wear a green shirt, or, It would be kind of neat if we could get back to who St. Patrick really was and what he was about. That would be interesting. But we thought, okay, what what can we do with this? We decided to go um, to an Irish pub in our neighborhood where the church was located. And and we stayed outside of the pub and set up a table, put our church banner up. I know you're already thinking, okay, this is a little bit weird. But hey, I got people kind of noticing what something's going on here. We had some great conversations with people. In fact... Looking back on that, I had more gospel conversations with people sitting at that table outside of that pub than I did the few months before that. Um, but we would we would mingle with people as they were coming in and out of the establishment, and we pulled three people um, pretty much out of the path from the bar to their car. They're walking with their keys, stumbling to their vehicle. We were able to talk to them and, and make sure they had a safe ride home and didn't and didn't drive under the influence. So that was. That was kind of rewarding, but we had a great time just talking to people. The next day at church, a woman that we met at that outreach, she came to our church service. She brought her children. They went to children's ministry, children's church. They had a great time. The woman went and prayed with our prayer team, similar to what we have here. She went and prayed with the prayer team during the service. It It was great. So just an example of, hey, there's sin all around us. What are we going to do about it? We're to be focused on bringing the good news of the kingdom. So in the last days, there's a lot of sin. If you're you're taking notes, write down this thought. Expect evil to bring difficulty, but remain joyful. Expect evil to bring difficulty, but remain joyful. This means that we can experience joy in our daily walk with Jesus. Our joy doesn't depend on the absence of challenges or even fierce seasons of difficulty all around us. Or the evil around us. Our joy doesn't depend on that. The next section here is is verses 2 to 5. And we've got this, honestly, kind of a depressing and vivid list of 19 characteristics of um, evil people. The kind of evil people that will flourish in the last days. A little bit hard to read there, but that's, that's a list. That's a list of 19 kinds of evil people. Lovers of self and money. Boastful, proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to parents, move down the list a little bit, unforgiving, slanderous, lacking self-control, prideful, people that love pleasure rather than God, and get this, people that act religious, they're acting religious, but they reject the actual power of God that could make them godly. So a pretty, pretty heavy list. Notice this at the top of the list, and the first one mentioned in the text, if you have your Bible and you can can look there as well, people will love only themselves. If you're going to try to look for some kind of like a root evil or root sin that their other ones flow from, I think you you can nail it right there. People are loving themselves only. And out of that flows all these other things. See, when you only love yourself... You're probably going to be concerned a lot about money and love money. You're going to be a boastful, proud person. When you only love yourself, you're the boss. So when you're looking at the scripture, you're going to, you're going to question that. You're you're going to, uh, look, you're going to be over the scripture rather than the scripture being over you. You're going to scoff at God. You're likely going to be pretty unforgiving because you're about loving yourself. You're not about extending love to other people. So I think it all kind of flows from that, uh, from that one description there. And my question is, when we look at ourselves, what, does, what do our lives reflect that we love the most? What do we love the most? Do we love ourselves and have some problems kind of flowing out because of that? Are we passionate about our walk with Christ and we're seeing God work in our lives? You know, wherever you're at, its okay, Jesus wants to bring you to a new place if you're a follower in Jesus, he guarantees that's going to happen. He by his spirit he's going to sanctify you over the course of time, basically making you more and more like Jesus as you submit to him. But this definitely um, it catches us off guard. So think about which ones you struggle with and how you where are you at with that in relation to Jesus being the leader of your life. Remember this that when we're talking to unbelievers that unbelievers are people they're they're not worshiping God but they are worshiping something they might not know that but they're worshiping something so they have a misplaced worship and a misplaced sense of where they're where they're putting their affections but this should actually help us relate to people right because as Jesus followers if we're honest some of these things can creep in so we can then relate out of compassion with people that are apart from Christ, that might be really um, struggling with these things, that should help us actually relate to people. But here's the thing. Verse 5 could really catch us off guard here, and I'll show you why in a minute. Look at verse 5. 2 Timothy three, five: They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. Wow. That catches us, that catches us off guard because... After listing 19 kind of repugnant characteristics of these evil people, we now find out two additional things. Number one, this is not just a warning for the future. This is for right now. Paul says to Timothy, stay away from these people. For Timothy, this is right now. And remember, the last days includes all the time in between the first and second coming of Jesus. So it's for Timothy. This is for us as well. Secondly, these people will act religious. You can make the argument that this is happening uh, in the faith community, in the church, are some people that are cultivating these characteristics. So they're acting religious, but they're not experiencing Jesus' transformative power. In fact, they reject it. They're cut off from the true source of power for Christians, the Holy Spirit, because they don't have a true relationship with Jesus. All they can do is give an attempt at moralism and act religious. But here's, here's the distinction we need to understand. This, this isn't a catch-all. Uh, this is not a catch-all statement for staying away from all unbelievers. Okay? Paul also said, do the work of an evangelist. And we know that Jesus came for people that were sick with sin. Jesus had many interactions with sinners who were broken and willing to grapple with their sin. Meanwhile, Jesus was pretty harsh on The hypocrites, the Pharisees, and their religious hypocrisy. So, this is the warning we have here. Hypocrites act religious, hypocrites acting religious in the church, but exhibiting the plethora of all those 19 characteristics of evil people. Paul says, avoid these kind of people. So, if you're coming across people that are acting religious, maybe they even have some teaching that's accurate, but if their behavior is those in those 19 things on an ongoing basis, meaning they're actually cultivating that behavior. See, there's a difference. If you or I struggle with some of those things on the list, we're in process with Jesus. He's, he's sanctifying us. But if somebody's an unbeliever and they're actually cultivating those things, but they're in our community, then Paul says, stay away. Avoid these kind of peoples. But don't, don't avoid people that are grappling with their sin and searching for a Savior. People all around us in our communities make that distinction. Even last week in chapter 2, we saw how Paul encouraged Timothy to this effect. He said, gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Because maybe God is going to change their hearts and they could escape the devil's trap. So his approach in chapter 2 is, you know, gently instruct these people. But then at the beginning of this chapter, Paul says, but realize this. He kind of switches gears. So he's saying, look, there's going to be people that you can correct gently and they're going to come around. But then there's going to be people that have no intention of being corrected. They are cultivating these these things on this list. And with those people stay away. So we have to make that distinction. If you're taking notes again, take take this down. Don't act religious. Be transformed by Jesus. Don't act religious. Be transformed by Jesus. If we're cultivating these 19 evil characteristics, we haven't been transformed by Christ. Think about this. Character determines behavior. I think we all know that we we can adjust our behavior, right? We can adjust our behavior to fall in line with what's socially acceptable or acceptable in our community um, or even out of just self-interest. We can adjust our behavior but we will eventually show our our character by what we do. You can't fake it for long, right? So this fact leaves us with a real and tangible challenge. The challenge is this. If you're a follower of Jesus, allow God through his Holy Spirit to do this ongoing work of molding you and changing your character to be more like Jesus. It's a process. So wherever you're at, that's okay. Jesus is committed to it. Have you ever had a conversation with a friend who was turned off to the church, and when they went to when they tried to explain to you why they had no, you know, maybe you invited them to church or to to, to talk about um, Jesus with them? Their their problem was was this: they had interactions with hypocrites in the church, and that was their wall. So they were done. That was their roadblock. When that happens, I think we need to be careful. Don't add to the roadblock. Don't defend hypocrites that they've come into contact with. Don't rationalize what, the hip, what, what happened. Just let it be. It is what it is. People have had interactions with hypocrites. What we need to do is we need to point people to Jesus. Just point people to Jesus at every turn, whatever context you're in. Be about pointing people to Jesus. If they find Jesus, they're reading the Bible on their own. The Spirit's opening their eyes. If they find Jesus, Jesus is going to bring them into the faith community in his time. Don't worry about the hypocrites that they've come across. Don't defend those people. So if we're honest, we've all been hypocrites at times. Even uh, Peter, the Apostle Peter, was rebuked by Paul in Galatians 2. He was aligning himself with the Judaizers. They didn't, he didn't understand, uh, that group didn't understand the gospel of grace. Peter was trying to straddle the line a little bit. Paul rebuked him. Peter repented, and later Peter is defending Paul and his understanding of the gospel. So you can, we can all be hypocrites at times, but we're not on an ongoing basis giving ourselves over to that. We're allowing Jesus to bring us around. So we avoid unrepentant um, hypocrites, but we express compassion in the good news of Jesus to those who are hurting and looking for a Savior. We don't judge unbelievers. Unbelievers don't have Jesus. They're the people we're trying to reach. But we are to evaluate and encourage those within uh, the faith community towards Christlikeness. So to further illustrate this, let's look at the next couple of verses in 2 Timothy 3-6. to This is a pretty startling passage <laughs> um, when you first read it. Let's, let's look at this here. Verses 6 and 7. They are the kind, speaking of these false teachers that are in the community there, they are the kind who work their way into people's homes and win the confidence of vulnerable women who are burdened with the guilt of sin and controlled by various desires. Such women are forever following new teachings, but they are never able to understand the truth. Wow. That's kind of, uh, again, that's kind of heavy stuff. The emphasis here, I believe, Is on, is on the false teachers, okay? This isn't some general negative blanket statement about the female gender. The emphasis is on the depths of sinfulness of these false teachers. In that point of history, uh, women had a less than satisfying social position in in Greco Roman society. There were not many opportunities for women to be employed. Uh, women in the Ephesian church would have had no religious training or no, no formal religious training, and <clears throat> scholars generally believe that these were likely women who were recent converts. So these women that are now in the Ephesian church, they would have enjoyed this new freedom to study the truths of Scripture for, their, for themselves. But this this is this is the eagerness that actually also made them a target for these false teachers. Verse 6 says the women were bur- burdened with the guilt of sin and controlled by various desires. Now if they're believers, they've got the spirit, they're in process, they're dealing with their stuff. Jesus is Jesus has declared them righteous, but he's making them righteous in their current behavior. They probably come out of recent pagan religions which might have involved prostitution. So really these women are still shaking off the chains of their past way of life. And that's why they're targeted by these by these evil people. They were burdened with a sinful past. So Tim, Paul says to Timothy, watch out for these kind of these kind of evil people that are going to prey on this type of women. So it's not all women, it's this certain group of women, new converts, coming out of this background. Watch out, they're going to try to prey on them. So, here's the thing. We need to be strong in our knowledge and practice of God's Word. Um, new believers need to grow. So, wherever you're at this morning, if you're a new believer, that's fantastic. The next, the next step is to find somebody to kind of help you along the way in your walk with Jesus. If you are a seasoned Christ follower, find somebody who's newer to the faith. Meet with them. Mentor them. Disciple them. Bring them to your Sunday class. Invite them to your small group. Start an R&R group where you can read the whole Bible in one year together and go through it that way. It's It's a great time to connect with new believers. Now, I think we can all agree on this. There's a lot of, in our information age, there's a lot of access to everything. So not every Christian program or Christian teacher on TV, on the Internet, through podcasts, it's not all filled with sound doctrine, right? You've got to sort through that. That's why it's nice to have a community that together we can discern and be a community together. Even within our family of churches, we have accountability built into the, to the MB um, family of faith. It's great. And as seasoned believers, we should not be tossed around by false teaching. Let's look at Ephesians 4, verse 14. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. We shouldn't be tossed all around. We should be a little bit more grounded. Now, in the conclusion of this passage... 2 Timothy 3, 8 and 9. Paul compares these teachers to a couple of other false false religious people. Let's look at this, 8 and 9. These teachers oppose the truth just as Janus and Jambres oppose Moses. They have depraved minds and a counterfeit faith. But they won't get away with this for long. Someday everyone will recognize what fools they are, just as with Janus and Jambres. So Paul is referring here to these magicians who opposed Moses in the book of Exodus. Their names are given here. In Exodus, their names aren't given. So their names actually come from early Jewish writings and tradition outside of the Bible. That said, Paul says, these teachers in our context are just like those guys. They've got a counterfeit faith, but here's the hope. They're not going to get away with this forever. Their folly will one day be clear. will one day be clear. Let's look at the context and actually in Exodus To what Paul's referring to here. Exodus 7. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw down his staff in front of the Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Isn't that interesting? The same thing wasn't the same source of power, but they were doing the same thing. So here's the thing. For the first three miracles... The magicians go miracle for miracle with Moses and Aaron. Staff becomes a snake. The Nile River turns to blood. The frogs cover the whole land. But then the gig is up. They're exposed. Look at Exodus 8 and Exodus 9. When the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils that were on them and all the Egyptians. So eventually they just can't, they can't keep up. They're exposed. They're false teachers and leaders. They didn't get away with it forever. And neither will those who act religious, but their character and the behavior doesn't flow from a, general, a genuine relationship with Christ. In the new Testament, it talks a lot about false teachers. It often talks about the content of the, t- the teaching, the source of the teaching um, that being from the evil one. In this context, it's more on the, behave, on the character of these false teachers. Eventually that's going to come out and people will see them for what they are. So if you're taking notes, write this down. Opponents of true faith will be exposed. These false teachers are going to be exposed. And it's interesting what Paul says in verse 8. He said they have depraved minds and a counterfeit faith. So as we wrap up this morning, I want to say this. We don't have to have we don't have to have a counterfeit faith. We can have a real and genuine faith in Jesus Christ. So as you think about this text this morning, where are you coming from? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ as the the leader of your life as the Savior of your life? Are you trusting him to take away your sins and then trusting him to actually lead your life on a daily basis? It's actually a relationship. Every day we're engaging with, with Jesus. Or are you just kind of doing the Christian thing? Go to church, uh, go to youth group, check off a few boxes, do the things you think that you're supposed to do. Or do you have a genuine faith? We don't have to settle for a counterfeit faith. We can have a real faith in Jesus today. As you think about the list that we went over, that long list of those 19 terrible things, maybe some of those things have started to kind of creep in into your life. But again, here's the distinction. Are you giving yourself over to those things? Are you cultivating them? Or are you in the process of grappling with them? You realize, okay, I'm starting, this is starting to kind of slip slip in here. If you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus is committed to working the process of getting that out of your life, and you can trust him in that. If you're not a follower of Jesus, today's the day. It'd be great to put your faith in him and begin living life under Jesus' leadership. It's a great, great thing. If you'd like to talk more about that, love to chat with you uh, after the service today, or someone at the prayer team could chat with you as well. So let's close in prayer this morning. God, we praise you for your great, great love for us, your great concern for us, so much so that you sent your son Jesus to come to earth. God, he, he took humanity, um, the nature of humanity unto himself, Lord. He went to the cross, paid for our sins, and now we can receive him as our Savior. So God, I pray that um, if we're thinking about that this morning, that you continue to open up our eyes to the truth about who Jesus is. God, we want to allow you to lead us in our lives. We don't want to display the characteristics of these evil people in this text that we looked at today, God. God, do the work of of making us more like your son every day as we follow him. Jesus, it's great to have a relationship with you, and we want to follow you with our whole heart. In Jesus' name, amen.